Welcome to Catacomb Theology, a podcast exploring all manners of Christianity as it relates to the church and world of today, as well as how it is related to the church and world of the past. I'm your host, Jan Castile, and welcome to another episode of Catacomb Theology. Today, we're going to be continuing in our series on Richard Hooker's The Heritage of Anglican Theology. Uh, Today's chapter is going to be taking us into Richard Hooker, a absolutely pivotal cornerstone individual in the history of the uh, Anglican Church. It's going to be a pretty, it's a decent chapter. It's not too long. Last week's, or not, well, last uh, chapter we read was long. (laughs) Very long. However, it was a good chapter, and this one I believe is going to be fantastic as well. We're, we're, We're about a quarter nearly about halfway through the book as of right now. So um, we're going to keep going. I hope that you all are finding it as insightful as I have found it. This is actually my first read of it as well, so we're going through it together. Um, But yeah, I don't want to keep you all too long, so without any further fanfare, The Heritage of Anglican Theology by J.I. Packer, Chapter 4, Richard Chapter 4. Richard Hooker. Hooker's Life. Richard Hooker lived from 1554 to 1600. He accomplished something remarkable during his relatively short life of 46 years and is generally recognized as the most mainstream of all Anglican theologians. Hooker was born in Exeter in the West Country of England. He was educated at Oxford University and became a fellow at his college, Corpus Christi, because he was brilliant. He had been sent to Oxford by Bishop John Jewell of Salisbury, who saw in him great promise for the ministry. In 1585, Hooker went to London and became Master of the Temple, the clergy head of the church associated with the headquarters of the legal community in London, and he used to preach in the temple chapel to lawyers. Then, in 1595, he became a country rector. He had already begun to write his great work, The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. He worked relatively slowly and needed leisure in order to complete his work. Bishops and officials in the English political establishment in London knew the importance of what he was doing and wanted to make sure he finished it, so they made him a country rector. The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity would eventually comprise eight books. The first five were published in the 1590s, and the last three after Hooker's death in 1600. The result was at least an apologia for the Elizabethan Church of England, defending it against its critics, most centrally its Puritan critics, but also Roman Catholics. It was the Puritans, however, who were the critics on Hooker's doorstep. Among them was Thomas Cartwright. If you recall, Cartwright had been removed from his professorship at Cambridge in 1570 for arguing in the course of his lectures on the Acts of the Apostles that the divinely revealed church order as exhibited in Acts 15 was Presbyterian. Cartwright became the leader of the emerging Puritan constituency that consisted of reforming young men. 
The specific things these young reformers wanted to change varied, but they certainly wanted to change details of the prayer book. And they also wanted to abolish the Episcopal Church order and replace it by something Presbyterian. In 1572, two of these young men, John Field and Thomas Wilcox, wrote a public admonition calling on Parliament to institute legal changes to bring in all the alterations they desired to see. Though a serious challenge, it never gained traction thanks to skillful manipulation by Queen Elizabeth. Meanwhile, Elizabeth's Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, John Whitgift, was tasked with writing against Thomas Cartwright, which he did. Thus, there was a series of exchanges in the Elizabethan controversial mode. Field and Wilcox's admonition to the Parliament was answered by Whitgift's critique sentence by sentence. That was the controversial way in the Elizabethan era. Cartwright then wrote an answer to the answer to the admonition, finding fault with every sentence of Whitgift's rebuttal. Whitgift wrote a further answer in the same fashion so that very soon enormous volumes were published one against the other. It was generally acknowledged that Whitgift had the better of the exchange with Cartwright. What Cartwright was arguing was also what the Puritans of Hooker's day were arguing, and Hooker, in responding to it, would outflank their position. Their view was that literally everything admitted into the worship and life of the church ought to first be warranted in scripture, either by example or by command. Anything beyond what was exemplified or commanded ought not to be done. This position, Whitgift already showed, meant that you were in the ridiculous position of having to look into scripture before scheduling the time for public worship and the like. The controversial exchange was full of relatively small-scale debating points like that. However, the Puritans did not concede defeat, and they continued to voice their views. That is why Richard Hooker was asked to write a fuller and more elaborate response to the Puritan plea for church formation. And this he began to do. His experience as master of the temple, preaching in the temple chapel each Sunday, had put him in a very good position to do this. There happened to be another licensed preacher at the temple church named Walter Travers. Hooker preached in the morning, and then Travers preached in the afternoon. And Travers, a feisty, fiery young Puritan, made it his business in the afternoon sermons to challenge things that Hooker had said in the morning sermon. Hooker, by all accounts, was a calm fellow. Being opposed in this way is profoundly disturbing, and it makes you think hard about the challenge that can be expected from the other fellow. That was Hooker's experience at the temple, and it prepared him for what he would say in his great work, The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Hooker's Significance Hooker, by general consent, as I have said, is the greatest theologian the Church of England has ever produced. What made him so great? It was partly that he was a very impressive stylist of the fulsome and rather long-winded sort. We today find Hooker difficult to read because his sentences are so long and elaborate in the way that classical Latin sentences, as constructed by writers like Cicero, are long and elaborate with subordinate clauses and qualifying phrases thrown in. But when you write those kinds of sentences, you can get a great breadth of view. 
As you write, you appear to be, and you really are, taking in the whole of reality. You are thinking your way around everything you say. If qualifications ought to be made or limitations ought to be expressed, you express them. As you move along, you are guarding your flanks, and you produce a kind of English that, though taking some effort for moderns to read, as I said, does give you a very broad, balanced, well-thought-out statement of the case you're making. Contrast what you get if you write only in the modern style, where each sentence is one clause with one main verb, subject, and predicate. That sort of writing produces sharp-pointed argument, but it does not always produce the guarding of the flanks. It does not always produce an awareness of what lurks on either side that might be brought back at you, calling into question what you have said. It produces, in other words, a danger of narrowness. Hooker did not write that way. I mention that in order to highlight his strength as a stylist. And as one who has done a certain amount of writing myself, I appreciate Hooker's skill in this more and more. Because if you want to make your case on paper, you must not leave your flanks unguarded. You must anticipate the criticism and work into your writing an answer to objections that may come. At least you must do that if you want to persuade people rather than just assert your views, however eloquently. Hooker was writing a treatise, and he was going for breadth. He was going for thoughtfulness. He was an impressive stylist of a kind the world of his time had never seen. A controversialist. As a controversialist, Hooker did, in fact, listen carefully to what his opponents were saying so that when he joined an argument with them, he was on target, and he kept his composure. He steadily set forth his argument without words of passion and fury at all. A calm writer, he was nonetheless weighty and forceful. It is generally acknowledged that as a controversialist, Hooker continues to excel. If you are an Anglican, you will still find in Hooker warrant for claiming that being an Anglican is as wise a way of being a Christian as you are likely to discover. It is a claim I make today, and I suppose I owe something to Hooker for the confidence with which I claim it. Hooker left behind him not just a literary style, but a controversial style. He showed the way to discuss and explore matters on which you differ, and turning red in the face, blowing your top, and being fierce but narrow will not get you anywhere. Champion of the Elizabethan Settlement Hooker was the champion of the Elizabethan religious settlement against the Puritans. As such, he became the classic theologian of the Anglican Reformation against Roman Catholicism. He always had the Catholic alternative in his eye, even when he was arguing directly against the domestic opponents of the settlement, that is, the Puritans. When something needed to be said against the Roman Catholic way of seeing things, Hooker said it. His greatness as a theologian was not always appreciated at the time. When the first five books of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity came out in the 1590s, the Puritan movement was still gathering strength, particularly on the pastoral front. Puritan pastors were distinguishing themselves in preaching Christ, preaching the gospel, preaching justification by faith, guiding people into the reality of personal faith, and so getting them converted guiding them in the specifics of godly living, down-to-earth, practical Christianity. Perkins had little books and all of that, which became benchmarks topically for the preaching and teaching of these Puritan pastors. 
and the Puritans, for the moment, had shelved their quest for further reformation of the prayer book and the Episcopal order. For these reasons, Hooker's work was not regarded as tremendously significant by the Puritans. And since attention was on the Puritans, other people did not bother much about it either. About a century would pass before the greatness of Hooker was appreciated. Things happen faster today. If people publish something of weight, there's so much print and electronic response that somebody will appreciate the strength of their contributions straight away. It was not like that in the 16th and 17th centuries. The response to Shakespeare is an example. The greatness of Shakespeare was not fully appreciated until about a hundred years after his death. At first, he was known as just a fine, fluent playwright. John Milton calls him sweetest Shakespeare fancy's child, who would warble his native wood notes wild. A good lively chap, that is what they thought of Shakespeare, and also of Hooker. In the middle of the 17th century, the Caroline Divines appreciated Hooker, but they were few, perhaps half a dozen of them. It appears that no one else cared much about Hooker's work. His first five books in Ecclesiastical Polity, of which the first printed edition was something like a thousand copies, were not reprinted until the late 17th century. Not many people read Hooker, and the last three books of Ecclesiastical Polity were not published at first, owing to Hooker's death at 46. James I held to the doctrine of the divine rights of kings, which did not square entirely with Hooker's understanding of the king as the first layman charged with guarding order in the church. James's understanding of royal supremacy in the church went beyond Hooker's, and so Hooker's literary executors, along with people who perceived that Hooker was not quite in line with the royal view, thought it best not to publish the next three books at that time. They were not published until some point in the Restoration period after 1660, when the doctrine of the divine right of kings in both church and state, the doctrine that both James I and Charles I believed, was ceremonially laid to rest. So Hooker took off, as we say, slowly. Nonetheless, since the end of the 17th century, his special greatness as a fundamental Anglican theologian has been appreciated by everybody who has been up to reading his books. Hooker looks out over the subsequent development of Anglican theology rather in the way that the revered American presidents in Rock on Mount Rushmore look out over the landscape down below. Anglican theologians who know their heritage constantly feel looked over in that way by the great Richard Hooker. I do myself. Hooker was a thorough Reformation theologian, and it is no embarrassment to me to be looked over by such a man. Hooker's Beliefs Hooker is a thoroughgoing Reformation theologian on, for instance, the authority of Scripture, Scripture as the rule of faith, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the God-given character of Scripture as divinely inspired in order to teach us all that we need to know for Christian life and salvation. In the Gospels and the Epistles, for example, what do you find? You find that Jesus and the Apostles regard the Scripture as God's Word written. They appeal to the Old Testament as their final authority. That is spectacular when you consider that the Son of God himself was doing that. Then you notice that the Apostles claimed divine inspiration and infallibility for their own teaching. 
Put these things together and you realize that we are confronted with a choice. Do we or do we not go with the founders of Christianity and how we regard the Old Testament and with apostolic teaching now embodied in the New Testament? Do we regard those two resources blended together as our rule of faith from God? It seems we ought to. It is an irresistible inference. So says Hooker. He carefully explains that we are talking about all things necessary for salvation in some certain form, things which could not easily be known by the light of natural discourse. And things which are necessary to be known that we may be saved, but known with presupposal presupposition of knowledge concerning certain principles. Among these principles the scripture teaches is that of the sacred authority of scripture. Hooker writes, being therefore persuaded by other means, that is, by historical reasoning, that these scriptures are the oracles of God, we find that these scriptures lay before us all the duties which God requireth of our hands as necessary unto salvation. There is the doctrine of biblical authority as integral to Christianity. There Hooker is stating it exactly as it ought to be stated. Take another example of the pure Protestantism, the pure Reformation theology of Richard Hooker. The central doctrine of Reformational preaching is the doctrine of justification through faith by the imputing of another's righteousness. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, righteousness wrought out by his perfect obedience to the Father during his incarnate life, righteousness climaxing in his being obedient unto death even the death of the cross, as it is said in Philippians 2. That righteousness is reckoned to us in the sense that we are pardoned and accepted just as fully as the Lord Jesus himself is accepted, and it is entirely for his sake and not for our own. He did it, and we get the benefit. That is the central doctrine of the Reformation. That is in Luther, and that is what we meet in the homily on justification by Archbishop Cranmer. We find it better stated in Hooker than in any of the other English reformers. Hooker begins by saying what the English reformers had never got around to saying, although they had implied it, and their incidental phraseology had often shown they believed it. Hooker made a point of saying that all our salvation, all our new life, all the life of the Christian, like the life of the church, is in Christ, in union with Christ. Union with Christ is a reality through faith from the human side. Union with Christ means the gift of the Spirit from Christ's hand to indwell and instruct and animate and lead. The Christian life and church life, then, are life in the Spirit. Calvin got it right. In the Institutes, Book 3, before he gets down to the details of salvation, the manner of our receiving the grace of Christ, he writes a brief but very weighty opening chapter on the thesis that all the blessings of God come to us in Christ, in union with Christ. Calvin says all the things that Hooker would also say. That is the right place to begin. As Philip Hughes spells out in Faith and Works, Cranmer and Hooker on Justification, Hooker writes about justification by faith alone. Hooker says in beautiful, stately Elizabethan English, God doth justify the believing man, yet not for the worthiness of his belief, 
faith is not meritorious, but for his worthiness who is believed. That is Christ. Hooker published a learned sermon on justification, which he described as dealing with that grand question which hangeth yet in controversy between us and the Church of Rome about the matter of justifying righteousness. In answer to the question, wherein do we disagree, Hook replied, We disagree about the nature of the very essence of the medicine whereby Christ cureth our disease, about the manner of applying it, about the number and the power of means which God requireth in us for the effectual applying thereof to our soul's comfort. That is a roundabout way of saying that as Protestant evangelicals, in contrast to Catholicism, we claim that faith focused on the promises of God and the Christ of the promises, those two realities were always held together in Reformation talk about faith, is all we need for the righteousness of Christ to be counted ours and for pardon and acceptance to come to us straight away just because Christ's righteousness is counted ours. As Hughes demonstrates, Hooker clearly disallowed the doctrine of inherent righteousness, the idea that justifying grace is infused or inherent in the Christian and that good works contribute to and enhance one's justification. Instead, Hooker explains, the penitent sinner through faith is found in Christ. This penitent sinner is to quote Hooker again, someone whom God beholdeth with a gracious eye, putting away his sin by not imputing it, taking away the punishment due thereunto, and accepting him in Christ as perfectly righteous as if he had fulfilled all that is commanded of him in the law. This is the gift of righteousness of which Paul speaks in Romans 5.17. Hooker cites Philippians 3.9, where Paul speaks of being found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Hooker also quotes 2 Corinthians 5.21, where we read concerning the incarnate Son that for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This being so, says Hooker, such are we in the sight of God the Father as is the very Son of God himself. The Church of Rome gets all this wrong. Thus, Hooker reaches the summary I quoted earlier when talking about the theology of the English reformers. Let it be counted folly or frenzy or fury, or whatsoever. It is our wisdom and our comfort. We care for no knowledge in the world but this, that man hath sinned and God hath suffered, that God hath made himself the sin of men, and that men are made the righteousness of God. Which again is a beautiful, pointed, rhetorical, comprehensive way of expressing justification by faith. You cannot say it more neatly and more devotionally and equivocally than that. If you ever doubted whether Hooker was a real Protestant evangelical, doubt no more. I have to acknowledge that Hooker is known as a result of much misrepresentation down through the generations, as the man who affirmed that an Anglican authority 
is a three-legged stool, the three legs being scripture, tradition, and reason. This picture implies that if any of those as an independent source of wisdom is taken away, the stool falls down and cannot stand. Hooker never used the image of a three-legged stool, and it misrepresents his thinking. Hooker's view was the Reformation's view of Scripture, as we have already seen. Scripture is the authoritative word of God. The sacred authority of Scripture is his phrase to refer to that. As far as he is concerned, the business of reason is simply to receive that. In philosophy and modern discourse, and perhaps in our own minds, the word reason is ambiguous. Some people use it in one sense and sometimes in another. The authentic sense, the fundamental primary sense, is that reason is the capacity of the mind to receive. This means receiving truth, receiving what is being said in the document you are reading, receiving observations of the world around you, and receiving whatever impressions those observations make. Impressions like, this is real, this is beautiful. Receptive reason is reason in its basic form. Receptive reason, I would say, and Hooker implies, is what God gave to Adam and Eve. Receptive reason is how, basically, we should think of reason and its role today. But ever since the Garden of Eden, it has been the way of fallen human beings to understand the role of reason in different terms, mainly in terms of reason as the ruler, ruling reason rather than receptive reason. Reason becomes the ruler when reason is made the judge of what people are saying and the judge of the significance of experience and observations you are making. Reason appeals to no authority except yourself, you as judge. Thus you exalt yourself as the insightful person and you present the things that you say and write on the basis that this is what your own insight, intuition, and reflection yield as if to say, listen to me, I know what's what. Receptive reason in God's universe should never do anything more than say, I receive what scripture tells me. It is from scripture that I learn what's what. I judge everything else that I read or observe, all my experiences of life, all my experiences of relationships and of other people. I assess all that by what is written in God's word. Yes, I judge, but I judge by allowing the Bible to judge. You cannot, of course, take this line unless you think that scripture doctrinally is self-interpreting. That is, that one passage throws light on another passage in terms of what they teach about God and created reality. In the narratives of scripture, there are all sorts of details about which, given our lack of knowledge of the background or of the language, Hebrew much more than Greek, we cannot be quite sure what is being said, but that does not affect the doctrine of Scripture, and Scripture teaches about God and his world and ourselves. To understand that doctrine, you have to see that Scripture is self-interpreting. To Hooker, this was no news. It was part of the claim. It had been part of the claim of all the English reformers and part of the claim of the continental reformers going right back to Luther and, of course, to Tyndale, the Bible translator. Though he was outside England between 1524 and 1535, before doctrinally the English Reformation began, Tyndale clearly wrote in many places that scripture is doctrine from God and that doctrine has two broad types. Some of it is gospel, 
which promises grace and goodwill from God to sinners. Some of it is law, and the purpose of law in Scripture is not only to make you realize your need of the gospel because you have not kept the law and you are a sinner, but also to set before you standards of obedience for your Christian life. In Tyndale's exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, he develops this aspect which he calls law setting standards. Tyndale also said, picking up the medieval idea, that in scripture we find examples. They are the examples of good living and bad living, examples of faith and of unbelief, examples of being blessed and of not being blessed. Those are the stories, the biographies, and the narratives all about people getting things right and getting things wrong before God. All that is there so that we may learn from their example to get it right. But you start with the doctrine, which is gospel and law. That is Tyndale, right back at the beginning of the Reformation era. Hooker assumes this rather than spending a lot of time proving it. He does not need to prove it because both he and the Puritans believed it. What Hooker says about the mistakes made by the Catholics has to do with the decrees of the Council of Trent, which met between 1545 and 1563, years before Hooker started writing the laws of ecclesiastical polity. The Council of Trent had said that holy tradition and scripture are to be received with equal reverence and as having equal authority. Hooker has this concern in mind when he hammers at the Roman Catholic Church in relation to the Bible. All of this is sorted out in an excellent little book by Nigel Atkinson titled Richard Hooker and the Authority of Scripture, Tradition and Reason. On the book's title page, under the name of Richard Hooker, Nigel adds this, Reformed Theologian of the Church of England. He is entitled to do that. If you are bewildered by the insistence among certain Anglo-Catholics that Hooker was a three-legged stool man, as they are themselves, Atkinson's book is the one to read. It is really very clear. Scripture is the authority. It is God's telling us that things that everyone needs to know about God and about life under God for us sinners. What the Bible tells us reinforces things we have always learned about God from natural theology. Hooker did believe in natural theology, but natural theology does not tell us anything about God's redeeming love and the way of salvation. All of that is in the Bible. The Bible is self-interpreting. Scripture illuminates scripture so that a body of biblical theology focused on God's saving grace in Christ is built up. It is the business of reason to receive all that, grasp it, and follow out the way in which scripture links up with scripture to build up the doctrines. Receptive reason is the kind of reason Hooker talks about, and he has nothing to say at all in favor of reason, the ruler. Reason the ruler would be a mistake. Of course, the Puritans likewise had nothing to say in favor of reason the ruler. We moderns are confronted with a view of reason that so emphasizes the concept of reason, the ruler, that it hardly has any space for the idea of reason, the receiver, in philosophy or theology. We say, in effect, what is important is that I spell out what is in my mind and heart, because I've got the insight, 
My reason is the ruler of what everybody else says, and my reason does not receive it rules. Modernism gives way to postmodernism, which denies that there are any universal truths or universal standards. Instead, everybody is free to offer whatever he, she, or they may think, feel, or imagine. That is all that is important. What about tradition? The substance of Hooker's thought, though he never says it in quite these terms, is that tradition helps reason to receive what is in the Bible. Tradition is the precipitate, we may call it, the legacy of centuries of work by Bible readers, people like Athanasius, Arrhenius, Augustine, Anselm, and Thomas Aquinas, seeking to draw out of Scripture what is there and to articulate the full faith in light of it. All these writers have left a rich legacy in the extent to which they have done that. We, of course, are more than 400 years on from Hooker, and we have the theological endeavor of those last nearly 500 years as an additional part of our heritage. From that tradition also, there is a great deal to be learned from Luther, Calvin, and Hooker himself, and from Jonathan Edwards and John Owen and others who have got it right. We have the honor of noting what these theologians claim to have discovered and how they have defended and expounded and built up those things from Scripture and then measuring that legacy by Scripture itself, letting Scripture have the last word. What passes the Scripture test, we then build into our own theology so that it becomes, in a real sense, a part of us. We have all actually done this to some extent with at least the patristic view from the early Christian centuries on the Trinity and the Incarnation. We have done it as well, I trust, in relation to the Reformation heritage of teaching about the ministry of the Incarnate Lord, the Atonement, His resurrection, His coming return, and His present ministry by the Spirit to His people. We are not the first persons to be interested in those topics. People have been thinking and writing and talking about them for many centuries. And all that they have said and all the work that they have done expounding scripture to justify and undergird what they have said, all that is their legacy to us. We get the benefit. One thing that marks out Anglicanism as compared with many other forms of Reformation Protestant faith is that Anglicans are very strong on the value of tradition and are very devoted Therefore, to going over tradition in historical theology ranging over nearly 2,000 years of churchly work, then drawing from that heritage the wisdom and understanding that come, so Anglicans believe, by the bucketful once you start exploring these deep wells of thought. This is what Anglicans have characteristically believed. Some have narrowed themselves by essentially saying, we are interested only in reformational tradition, we're not interested in the fathers in the early centuries or in what has gone on in the Church of Rome. They forget that Catholic scholars, too, within the limits the Church allows them, have sought to discern exactly how doctrine should be built up from Scripture. Anglicans, who narrow themselves in that way, it seems to me, are showing themselves to be second-rate Anglicans. Earlier, I used the image of a person with an unlimited charge card going through a large department store and taking possession of whatever he or she sees there that is good and right and beneficial. Think of the tradition of the church in those terms. You go through history and grab every good thing you see. 
non-Anglican evangelicals are beginning to do it, but Anglicans have been doing it for more than 400 years. This is something Hooker does and tells us to do. When we get to the specifics of Hooker's theology, we shall see specifically how some of this works out. Hooker's Influence Anglican institutionalists, for better or for worse, always claim Hooker as their apologist simply because he defended the Elizabethan Church of England as a going concern. His prayer book and its Episcopal order, dealt with in Hooker's Book 7, do present the Church as a going concern, which the Anglican Church continues to be. But institutionalists, in my way of thinking, are not the best sort of Anglicans because they say, in effect, the Church of England right or wrong. Just as British nationalists and patriots of a hundred years ago were saying, my country right or wrong. We cannot honor God by saying my church right or wrong, because the church lives by the truth that God has told us in his word, and to the extent that the church strays from the word, it needs to be corrected and changed. We cannot give it unqualified loyalty. But institutionalists tend to do that. The greater the number of parish clergy in a diocese who appear to be institutionalists, the greater the difficulty for other clergy who are not institutionalists and who insist that the diocese is wrong on something very fundamental and must change. Anglo-Catholics and the Anglican Communion regularly claim Hooker on the basis of the three-legged stool idea of his notion of authority. Anglo-Catholics are Anglicans who believe that in the Reformation, the Church of England followed the earlier Protestant churches too far afield from the medieval way and the patristic way, they later came to say, of believing and doing things in the church. They therefore say we ought to recover what was lost at the Reformation. One of the things that Anglo-Catholics as a body believe was lost at the Reformation is sufficient attention to church tradition. Few of them go as far as the Council of Trent and say that tradition merits the same respect as scripture because the two are equally from God. The Anglo-Catholic way has been to say that tradition is not taken as seriously as it should be by moderate Anglicans, and certainly by evangelicals out on the fringe. Anglo-Catholics see themselves as trying to bring tradition and its weight and its wisdom back into the center of church life. They claim Hooker as the pioneer of the enormous importance of tradition for the fixing of our faith. Tradition is indeed extremely important as a resource in the process of fixing our faith, but the Bible must always have the last word, and not all Anglo-Catholics have said that as clearly as they should. It was the 19th century high churchman John Keeble, to whom John Henry Newman said the Catholic Revival Tractarian movement owed its existence, who promoted the understanding of Hooker as a Catholic theologian of the 16th century, making much of the church and of the sacraments and of the authority of the clergy and of tradition as a source of understanding what the faith is, with scripture to be interpreted in harmony with tradition. Keeble edited the works of Hooker in three volumes so that people in the 19th century could go to Hooker and find and read him for themselves. Hooker's works have been out of print for a lengthy time prior to that. Keeble's edition is very good, but readers should be aware that the man who edited it was the pioneer of the Tractarian movement, 
the Catholic revival. Hooker's works and their concepts. Here I will summarize the major concepts within Hooker's works and the themes and theses of his eight books of the laws of ecclesiastical polity. His concept of scripture. What did Hooker understand as to the concept of scripture? He received the Bible in the way that all the theologians of the Reformation received it, as a God-given canon in which God tells us all that we need to know about him and ourselves in relation to him. All things necessary to salvation, then, are in Scripture, and Scripture must not be augmented at this point, as the Church of Rome does. Any more than Scripture should be diminished in the way, Hooker argues, that the Puritans of his day did. Of course, that is the last thing that the Puritans thought they were doing. But Hooker maintains that if you do not allow for the work of reason and the place of tradition in understanding Scripture, you are going to diminish Scripture, not in itself, but in your understanding of it. Your understanding will be limited in ways in which it should not be limited. There will be much in Scripture for you to learn that you will not learn. This is the same way of understanding the nature and place of Scripture that you find in all the Reformers, particularly Calvin, who is very good on Scripture, reason, and tradition, as they together bring us the authority of Scripture for our learning and our obedience. Scripture, reason, and tradition belong together not as a three-legged stool, but as a methodological threesome whereby the message of the canonical Scriptures come home to us. We read the text. We let scripture illuminate scripture with regard to its doctrine. We exercise our reason receptively. We humbly consult the church's tradition of theological and expository work on the scriptures to help us understand better what we are trying to understand at each point. His concept of law. What about Hooker's concept of law? This is a matter in which he is distinctive in the sense that no theologian in Christian history, no pre-Reformation theologian and no Reformation theologian either, had trodden exactly the path Hooker treads. It is my view that his concept of law is in fact extremely useful as an integrating concept for putting together the faith of the scriptures. What did Hooker mean when he spoke of law? Here we are introduced to a concept that takes a little grasping. The concept of oughtness, particularly understood in terms of teleology. Teleology is the idea that things, realities, all have a goal of one sort or another. What the philosophers call imminent teleology, that is an inner process of making for a goal, is said Aristotle, that observant Greek philosopher, a mark of all living things. Human life tends towards a goal. Animals live in terms of their own goals, keeping the stomach full being the central goal, in most cases, and procreating when they have the urge. Vegetables and flowers have their goals. Each grows to what is regarded as its ideal form, the developed cabbage or Brussels sprouts, the flowering hyacinth or lily, all flowers tend to the perfect state, which is blooming. That is what Aristotle meant by eminent teleology. This notion was 
a given in all Western thinking about life from Aristotle's time, the 4th century BC, right up to the 16th century without a break. It was taken for granted by Christian thinkers. Yes, this is the way God made things, and it reflects the fact that he himself, the supreme personal agent, is working for a goal. His acts are to be understood teleologically, just as the acts of his human creatures are to be understood teleologically. The things we do are always aiming towards a goal. Hooker picks up the thought of teleology as a fact both in God and in the created universe, and he runs with it. Out of it comes his concept of law. What is law? Law is a statement of what everything ideally will be, in that sense ought to be, in order to be its best. There are different levels of law, says Hooker, just as there are different levels of real being. There is one God, and there are all the different orders of living beings he created. There are angels. There are men. There are animals. There are insects. There are plants in the vegetable world. All these tend by eminent teleology towards their own ideal condition. Law is Hooker's word for the oughtness that is eminent, embedded in the very being, the very nature which drives them towards their own ideal state. Now, law can be expressed in words, but the words refer to the state of being that constitutes the ideal for each reality. And so law is built into the natural order, which is the divine order, just as it is built into God. God has to be himself in character with himself, aiming at what he sees to be best all the time. That is law in God. It is nothing more than a description of God being what we will acknowledge he ought to be and what he knows he ought to be. The created order at level after level has laws built into created things. By an extension of that, there are laws verbalized by, by God, as by men, to guide human beings towards their own ideal state and pattern of living, which, without the guidance of the verbalized law, they might miss. The concept is still a single concept of law, this oughtness in things, but this particular mode of oughtness gets put into words. So you find Hooker saying, which Christian theology has always said that there is such a thing as the natural law, which tells us of the existence of a creator and of the fact that we ought to worship him. What is that natural law? It is truth discerned from the process of nature. That is the natural law that Thomas Aquinas wrote about at such length. And says Hooker, thinking now as a reformational theologian, when there are things we need to know for salvation, that is, for our own ideal condition under God, for the restoring of the goodness that in part we forfeited through sin, then God speaks and verbalizes the law in order to tell us what we should understand and what we should do in order to arrive at that ideal condition that is revealed law. One of the things God made all human beings for is community. To ensure that every community aims at, and so far as possible, achieves its own ideal condition. Laws are made for its guidance. In some communities, the body politic, for instance, the laws are made by the members of the community themselves for their own guidance. That is the basis for Hooker's politics. In the church, laws are made by Christians for themselves on the basis of the laws that God has revealed in his word. 
That is canon law, church law, reflecting the laws of God. From this standpoint, the gospel promises and the facts on which they are based may also be called law. Law in the special Hookerian sense, whereby the gospel is law. That is not law, of course, in Paul's sense, when the apostle opposes law to grace and the gospel. Hooker is still dealing with the philosophical concept of law, which he has formed in light of scripture, but which does not rest directly on biblical texts and promises. What does it rest on? Hooker virtually says it this way. You cannot be alive and thinking in God's world without this concept of oughtness coming home to you. You realize that in this world, there is an ideal state for everything and everybody, one which everything ought to aim at and ideally achieve, and which it will not achieve unless it aims in the right direction. This is Hooker's teleological concept of oughtness operating, as I said, in all these different ways. This concept constitutes a frame. Within it is set the biblical revelation of God's redemptive action and all of the new life that can be ours in Christ through faith. You can see that this concept is many-sided. Law in God is not verbalized. In God, law is the state of divine being whereby it is God's own nature always to aim at his own ideal goal and ideal state of affairs which he ought to aim at. That is oughtness in God. As for law among men, there is political law and there is church law and there is the law of Bible teaching, which is really prior to church law. The law of Bible teaching includes the law of Moses, which people in Paul's day and Christ's day misunderstood as a mode of salvation without faith. Hooker knows all about that. There is also the gospel with its promises and invitation toward faith in Christ, and this gospel is law, as I mentioned earlier, in the sense that this is what ought to command the assent of everybody. Everybody needs it, and this is God's means of restoring us to the state of existence in which we ought to be. This law gets verbalized in scripture, in the church's worship forms, in the church's canon law, and in the church's preaching and teaching. But it is all law in this broad sense, focusing the oughtness of everything, pinpointing the ideal, and directing everyone to go for it. Bishop Henry McAdoo's essay, Richard Hooker, which I mentioned earlier, has some helpful formulations about this. McAdoo says in his own way that what I have been saying to clarify in my way. One thing about McAdoo is particularly revealing. He describes Hooker as a liberal conservative. I prefer to describe Hooker as a rational conservative who uses reason for the purpose for which it was given us, that is to receive what comes to us from God by various channels. McAdoo is not as strong as he needs to be on that point. Here, however, is a good explanation of law from McAdoo, beginning with this quote from Hooker. All things that are have some operation non-violent or casual. That which doth assign unto each thing the kind, that which doth moderate the force and power, that which doth appoint the form and measure of working, the same we turn a law. 
As law, it is imminent according to the teleology that is, first of all, in God and then in all God's creatures. Macdu explains this is his introduction to a majestic, all-inclusive range of thought which sees law as the epiphany of God's wisdom and power in the universe. That is well said. Macdu then quotes Hooker again. Of law, there can be no less acknowledged than that her seat is the bosom of God, her voice the harmony of the world, all things in heaven and earth do her homage, the very least as feeling her care, and the greatest as not exempted from her power. Both angels and men, and creatures of what conditions soever, though each in different sort and manner, yet all with uniform consent, admiring her as the mother of her peace and joy. That is a pictorial way of expressing what I have tried to say in a more down-to-earth fashion. Hooker's thought here comes from Aquinas, says McAdoo, who writes, It is evident that for Hooker, law is not so much a promulgation as an implanted directive, an imminent reality, in other words, by means of which all things, not just some, but all, tend towards their own proper perfection. The phrase is his own, which law directeth them in the means whereby they tend to their own perfection. The angels keep their ancient places, and the tulip bulb becomes a tulip, not a daffodil. We are seeing Hooker's conception of law in terms of which he is going to theologize about God and man and Christ and salvation and everything. Law is, so to speak, the kettle in which all the water is going to boil. Is Hooker's implication, then, that God has an ideal state? Yes, and the Bible word for that is glory. If you know your Jonathan Edwards, you will recall that Edwards makes much of the fact that God's end, that is, God's goal, not his terminus, is his own glory. That concept includes God's honor on the one hand and God's own enjoyment of that state of affairs on the other. Edwards goes on at length along those lines, and if you have read the work of John Piper, you will have heard all that said in contemporary terms. As for church law, Hooker emphasizes that since all church law, canon law, made by the church for the church, is subordinate to scripture, with its only warrant being that it is intended to direct us towards living out scripture ideals and achieving scripture goals, it is therefore immutable. In different situations, under different circumstances, the church can change its law, and indeed should. The Puritan idea, which has never worked out as thoroughly as Hooker's, seems to have been that you find in particular texts of scripture regularly lifted out of their context, treated as absolutes in their own right, certain directives to do this or that. When you put all the bits together, you have a church order that cannot be changed because it is required by scripture. Hooker actually introduces a flexibility into the self-governing life of the church that the Puritans would have excluded, and indeed, a lot of the thinking about the church did exclude. That was one of the marks of immaturity in that phase of Puritan thought. You do not find the same mistake made by the great Puritans like John Owen, who lived a hundred years later and had the benefit of those years of debate and reflection. But early Puritans were the young men who followed Cartwright, men who, in the manner of zealots in their 20s, were tempted to believe they knew all the answers. 
This was characteristic of the young campaigning Puritans of the 1570s and 1580s. Hooker, however, was not an apostle of rigidity in church law. He was an apostle of responsible flexibility under scripture. Hooker's way of thinking everything through in terms of the generic notion of law, which applies first to God and then in its own way to everything and everybody in his creation, was unique to him and not something you find in Reformation theologians on the continent. The foundations for his thinking were laid by Thomas Aquinas, but Aquinas never made the concept of law central in the way that Hooker did. This is really Hooker's genius as a controversialist. He establishes by his concept of law, which fills the whole first two books in his ecclesiastical polity, a framework within which everything fits. He acknowledges the different levels at which law is a reality and how the law at each level is compatible with the law everywhere else. Regarding the Elizabethan religious settlement, Hooker offers a kind of tour de force argument. He says that here you have church law that fits in with every single one of the higher goals of law as we discern them from scripture in relation to God's economy of grace and what God wants to do in redeeming us. It fits in also with the yet higher level of law in which the angels fulfill the role that they were created to fulfill, and it fits the supremely higher level in which God himself, according to the law, eminent in his own being, is going ahead to work for his own glory and joy because it is the nature of God to do that. So law and theology cover absolutely everything and become, as I have said, the kettle in which Hooker put everything to boil. The Puritans had no such kettle. As a result, Hooker is able to outflank them again and again, showing, among other things, that in picking texts out of scripture and putting together a collection of bits and pieces, then saying that this is the church order we are commanded to observe, they are really doing something unskillful, clumsy, and, in the final analysis, unwarranted. The classic example of this, used by Cartwright, Field, Wilcox, and Travers, is the contention that there must be worshipped twice every Lord's Day because there was a morning and an evening sacrifice prescribed for Israel in Old Testament legislation. It sounds at first like a worthy argument, but when you look closely and think about it, you realize that the morning and evening sacrifice does not provide a precedent for morning and evening prayer in the Christian world. There is no intrinsic relation between the two. It is that kind of argument which the Puritans were so often invoking. Hooker was able to say that all this was picayune, unskilled, and foolish. Everything that is done in the church ought ultimately to have its rationale and the reality of law, which includes God and his being and his revealed will for the fulfillment of his own goals and the proper mutability of church law in order to achieve God's goals. It is an organic way of thinking about the inner life of the church, which outflanks the Puritans again and again. Hooker's style of writing was to circle round things rather than saying them straightforward. The early books of his ecclesiastical polity circle round these concepts. There he expresses them in his own organic way, not in the way that I am trying to explain his concepts to you. But I now come clean. While I do not use the concept of law as a label in all the theological thinking I do, I try to keep Hooker's frame in mind and detest whatever I am coming up with or offering or proposing by asking myself, will this fit into Hooker's frame? 
The frame itself, however you refer to it, is in fact the right frame because I believe it is derived from scripture. The church and its life. Hooker brings the notions that I have examined thus far to bear on both the being and the functioning of the church. He does this systematically, insisting that everything that comes to the church comes to us in Christ and through Christ. The Bible says that, and Hooker never gets away from it. The church is the community of those who have faith in Christ, and within that community, Jesus Christ is Lord, and everything must make for his glory in the fulfilling of his goal. Notice again the teleology, the fulfilling of Christ's goal for Christ's people. It is actually the goal of the Father and the Spirit also. Hooker always has the Trinity in mind. That means that in the church you must have worship. You must have teaching and instruction. The order of worship must at every point be calculated to evoke and express devotion. Any false ideas connected with the things you have enacted for worship must, of course, be corrected and dismissed. The right way of worshiping God the way that makes for his glory on the one hand and our growth on the other must be constantly explained to the Lord's people so they will not stumble in any way. In order for the church to function in this way, there must be ministers. And bishops? Yes, says Hooker, because the church is in fact one. There is only one Christ, only one Lord, and only one fellowship that we know from Scripture. The oneness of the church ought to be made as visible as possible, and one of the ways in which we do that, and it is common sense to do it, is by holding on to the historical pattern of ministry, purged from excesses, to be sure, that has been going on in the church for as long as we know. The Episcopal Order Episcopacy is part of a ministerial pattern that goes back at least to the beginning of the second century and perhaps into the first. In terms of law and reason and eminent teleology and the goals to be pursued in the church's life, no good reason can be given for abolishing bishops just because episcopacy has been abused in the past and it is not explicitly talked about in scripture. There is nothing, says Hooker, in the Episcopal oversight of the church that violates the observance of New Testament principles of church life. And there is a great deal to be said for retaining it. Just because the old pattern has proved its worth and it does exhibit the unity of the church in its own way, as it has right back to the age of the apostles. Then too, in every congregation, there will be pastors who lead in doing the things that the congregation does, and there will be love and care and good works in the congregation, because that helps bring every congregation toward the perfection that God has in mind for it. There is teleology again. When we talk about the relation between the one church as God sees it, which is visible only to him and invisible to man, we call it the church invisible. And the church that is visible to us, the church as we see it, a distinction that Hooker accepts and works with, we say that every local congregation is a microcosm, a sample, a small-scale manifestation, and so a demonstration of the one church universal. That, it seems to me, is something every biblical theologian must say, if only because Paul uses his image of Christ, the head of the body, for both the universal church and the local church. Paul speaks in Ephesians 4, 4-5 of one spirit, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Universal realities that apply to the whole church, the church universal. He also uses the head and body image in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. You are the body of Christ, and the you here is the local congregation in Corinth. Just as there are local churches in Rome, in Coloss, in Ephesus, and plenty of other places. You represent the body of Christ in miniature, and as such, you are a microcosm, a small-scale demonstration of the one universal church of Christ in which all local churches are miniature demonstrations. This is something that all biblically faithful theologians nowadays affirm, and all wise theologians have always affirmed. It is something Hooker himself affirms on the basis of the 39 articles and the whole heritage of Reformed Anglican theology. It is within that understanding of the unity of all congregations, within the one universal Church of Christ, that Hooker sees the Episcopal order as one of the signs of the historical unity of the Church. Remember, we are in the 16th century, when non-Episcopal nonconformity does not yet exist, so he is entitled to say that the Episcopate is an ordinance that nearly all the Church Universal, from its very early days, has held on to. The Episcopate is one of the signs that there is only one Church. This is the understanding whether of the Episcopate in the Church of England, or in the Roman Catholic Church, wherever found, or in the Orthodox churches. Hooker defends and substantiates the Episcopacy, which enables him to say on the one hand that non-Episcopal churches, I am thinking particularly of some Lutheran and Reformed churches, are not any the less churches because they do not have bishops. Bishops, in other words, are not essential to the church's existence, but Hooker says for the reasons stated, it's intrinsically good form, it's enriching form of ministry, and it's testimony to the unity of the church through the ages and across the board, Episcopacy is a good thing to have when you can have it. In other words, Episcopacy makes for the well-being of the visible church. That is Hooker's view and has been the mainstream Anglican view from the days of the Reformation to the present. Non-Episcopal churches are no less churches without bishops, but at the same time we should rejoice in having retained bishops because when the episcopacy is functioning properly, it is performing for the glory of God. Thus, it is an expression of the law, of the oughtness that springs from the nature of God and requires that everything in God's world should be done and managed as well as possible. Never let the good be the enemy of the best. This is the kind of reasoning Hooker employs. You can see that it is all theological reasoning rooted in his understanding of what the Bible teaches, rooted in his understanding of what the Bible is, rooted in his understanding of law and the teleology that law expresses and serves, the oughtness in things which goes back ultimately to the fact that God is being and he continues to be what he ought to be. When one reads Hooker, it is the organic way that he thinks, linking everything up with everything else that needs to be appreciated. That is what I am trying to highlight. We as evangelicals are used to fragmented theology in which you isolate this or that theme for treatment without integrating it into the totality of God's revelation. What God has to say about everything else in the way that Hooker does. Hooker gives you the picture of the individual Christian within the English church, but it could be anywhere. 
And that local church is within the One Church Universal. And the One Church Universal is what it is because of the headship of Christ. That, in its turn, is rooted in the whole economy of redemption, which is rooted in turning God's goal for his rational creatures, God's goal for his world, and God's glory as he fulfills the built-in oughtness of his own nature and does the things that cause us to offer praise and say, we can't imagine God in the situation doing anything better than he is doing here. We are not used to this organic way of thinking about the realities of theology and Christian life, that is why I am boring it. The Sacraments Working with this way of looking at church life, Hooker's approach to the two dominical sacraments, which is exactly the approach expressed in the Anglican articles that deal with baptism and the Lord's Supper, is that these rites were instituted by the Lord Jesus, and it is therefore part of the biblical law for the guidance of the church that these rites be maintained that everyone be admitted to the fellowship of the church by baptism, and that the church regularly share in the Lord's Supper. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, this is by general agreement, the Greek idiom in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six means on a regular basis, frequently. We do that because the Lord tells us to. So we understand what scripture explains about the symbolism of the two rites. The first rite, baptism, is a washing, a symbolic cleansing. It points to that union with Christ, which brings justification, and justification means that God sees you and accepts you and deals with you as if you were clean, even though you are dirty, dirty in the sense of being guilty. But the Anglican articles say that the sacraments are to strengthen faith. And yes, baptism is to strengthen faith, and the blessings of baptism will not be received without faith. Hooker is clear on that, although he is also prepared to say that we must not set limits to what God may do through the rite of baptism in order to bring people to faith. So it is possible for those wanting to do so to understand Hooker in terms of baptismal regeneration, although he never goes that far. On the way to regeneration is as far as he goes. He is very strong on the provenience of grace. God works in the human heart prior to any response from the human heart which is what prevenient grace is, grace that comes first. Turning to the Lord's Supper, Hooker spells out the symbolism. Again, he essentially says, what I know about the way God works through the sacrament, what is clear in scripture, is that it is intended to strengthen and confirm faith. What I do not know is how much of what kind and in what way God may work in the human heart through that faith. Hooker basically says, I do not need to know that. What he does know and says is this, O oh my God, thou art true, O oh my soul, thou art happy. It seems to me that here again, Hooker is ringing the right bell, theologically speaking. He strikes just the right balance of positive affirmation about baptism and the Lord's Supper and openness to what we do not know about God and the sacraments. It is not an openness that ought to bother us because he is not teaching the fullness of regeneration without faith. Hooker does not say anything like that. In the case of the Lord's Supper, it is not the fullness of grace, strengthening grace, communicated without faith. No. Faith is integral to God's doing, whatever he does, through the sacraments. And the first thing the sacraments do is to evoke faith. Hooker does not quite say it, and no other Anglican theologian quite says it in the excellent way it was said in the Heidelberg Catechism, a Reformed document dating from 15, 
63. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me, and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me, and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. In other words, I do not doubt my senses. So sure is it that Jesus Christ is for real, the promises are true, and the blessings of the gospel are what Jesus says they are. There is such a thing as the new life in Christ that sets us before God's throne as if we were perfectly righteous and certainly cleansed from all sin. There is such a thing as an ongoing vital union between ourselves and Christ whereby spiritual strength is given to us in the way that food, bread, and wine strengthen the body. Symbolism points to it. Assuredly, as I see and feel and taste, so sure are the spiritual realities of which the sacraments are seals. So the bottom line of sacramental theology is, in very truth, seeing is believing. That dictum clarifies things once you understand what is meant by seeing and believing. Hooker looks towards this when he insists that the sacraments confirm the realities of grace, and the sacraments also become means of grace through becoming means of faith and means to faith, and what they bestow as means of grace is more than we can know. That is Hooker's sacramental theology. It is higher than the sacramental theology of some free churches, but not higher, it seems to me, than what the New Testament straightforwardly puts forth. The details of his arguments with the Puritans are secondary and trivial, and I will not elaborate on them. My concern is to show how his argument outflanks the Puritans in this manner of church order. In Book 5 of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, Hooker goes over everything in the prayer book, vindicating it in the terms that I have been talking about. This makes for the goals that the principle of law requires us to seek, to see in detail how he defends particular elements in the prayer book, dig into book five. Jurisdiction in the church. Jurisdiction in the church has to do with church law. Canon law commands assent once it is made, but it is mutable. The church seeing that the law needs to be changed in order that the church achieve its own proper objective is entitled to change it. The 39 articles spell this out. The church will properly have its own courts for administering the jurisdiction that is legislated. The role of England's monarch in the church, treated in Book 8, is that of the first layman, who takes into the church his responsibilities as the leader of his people. This responsibility is not to legislate doctrine or to legislate discipline. No form of royal absolutism must come into the church. This is where Hooker's executors later recognized that his book 8, if published, would clash with what King James was saying and what King Charles was to say after him about the divine right of kings. They went much farther than Hooker. But, says Hooker, when the church has legislated for itself under God, and in England, that means the monarch in parliament, Hooker sees that as perfectly rational. Hooker works with the concept of the monarch in parliament, 
not the concept of parliament without the monarch or the concept of the monarch without the parliament. He believes that a proper application of the principle of teleological law in the political community of England has come up with what is best, namely the monarch in parliament, as the organ of jurisdiction in the church and the monarch as the head of the jurisdiction. The monarch is not head of anything when it comes to the church legislating doctrine for itself, but head of the administration of what the church has legislated for itself. Of course, we are far removed from this, now living in the 16th century. While Hooker's principles are sound, they have to be totally rethought in terms of the situation we face today, where none of our Protestant denominational churches is anything like the Church of a Nation in the way that the Church of England was back then. The political realities have totally changed. In the world's nations today, the body politic that is elected does not represent the church in the way the parliament did for England in Hooker's day. Parliaments run the civil order in modern nations, and the churches within the realms have their own gatherings for their own purposes of legislation and ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Confronted with the modern church situation, Hooker would say, Clearly, we have to rethink this. What representative assembly does the church have to legislate canon law for itself? What jurisdictional pattern may the church legislate and administer without running afoul of the civil order? What ministry in the church are bishops free to do in the current setup? So he would think it all out in terms of his own basic principles reapplied and adjusted to a changed situation. But what remains is Hooker's frame of reference, which starts with teleological law as the kettle, the container, the controlling concept in terms of which everything is thought out, both in relation to God, what he is, what he does, and in relation to the church, what it is and what it does. Some Anglican theologians, I include myself, still see great wisdom, indeed brilliance in the way Hooker has brought all these things together and they still do their basic thinking in these terms, including their exegesis of scripture. They recognize that scripture as written material is bound together in all sorts of ways, and one of those ways is that all of it aims at the same thing, the glory of God through the doing of his will. This is the goal of God in relation to the teleological law of his nature, which prompts him, because he is God, to seek his own glory in this way. Hookerian exegesis of scripture will always be done from that point of view. Hookerian exegetes will always have problems with the people who pick and choose isolated texts, taking them out of context to prove a point. You cannot handle the Bible that way. You have to handle it organically. The organic way of seeing everything in relation to everything else is the key to thinking right and doing right in all things. George Herbert's The Country Parson embodies Anglican pastoral ideals thought out in Hookerian terms, but expressed in a non-technical way. Herbert wrote this little book for himself before he was ordained as a kind of benchmark for the ministry that he was being entrusted with. Writing a letter to yourself to be reread at different intervals of your life can be quite a telling exercise. I am sure that rereading The Country Parson was a telling exercise for George Herbert. Thank you all for tuning in to today's episode of Catacomb Theology. I hope you enjoyed J.I. Packer, sorry I almost said Richard Hooker, <laughs> said his name so many times, 
Um, I hope you enjoyed J.I. Packer's take on Richard Hooker's work. Um, I highly would recommend any of his books. Um, I'm currently going through the series. I've, I read the first book, but I'm still working on the rest of them. Um, but definitely would highly recommend them to any individual who is interested in learning more about Anglican theology, particularly Reformed Anglican theology. Next week, we're going to have another episode. Um, however, I will not say what the topic is because it is bound to be quite interesting and I believe in keeping the audience a little bit on their toes for this one. So until then, I hope you all have a blessed rest of your week and thank you again for tuning in to Catacomb Theology. God bless.